You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Amnesia 33 vulnerabilities infest the IoT supply chain. Lawful intercept spyware allegedly finds its way from Mexican police into the hands of drug cartels. Finland's parliament approves exclusion of telecom equipment on security grounds. The U.S. National Defense Authorization Act's cyber provisions. Online fraud seems to become a side hustle. Ben Yellen responds to Supreme Court arguments in a Computer Fraud and Abuse Act case. Our guest is Darren mar from Sempris on group policy security. And Moscow police are looking for the crooks who hacked secure delivery lockers. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, December 8th, 2020. Researchers at Forescout this morning released a report on a set of TCP IP vulnerabilities they're calling Amnesia 33, the 33 referring to the number of vulnerabilities they've found. Four, they consider critical, and in general, the issues are believed to broadly and deeply affect Internet of Things devices. SC Magazine says that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security is expected to release a report on the vulnerabilities soon, perhaps as early as today. The problems are believed to pervade the IoT supply chain. Many manufacturers may well be unaware that their products are affected. The Amnesia 33 vulnerabilities are propagated through third-party software that's used in components of all manner of smart devices from, as SC Magazine puts it, printers to Pico satellites, from the home office to low-Earth orbit. Both Haaretz and The Guardian are reporting on Forbidden Stories' cartel project, which describes the ways in which Mexican police, users of NSO Group's lawful intercept products, have allegedly been reselling that technology to drug cartels, which in turn have used the spyware to monitor journalists and other third parties. Some of the allegations are attributed to sources in the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. The story is dismaying, but ought not to be entirely surprising. If weapons can find their way from police lockers to criminal gangs, why should tech tools be any different? The reports stress the threat to journalists, and the chilling effect that can be expected to have on news coverage of the cartels. Reuters reports another setback for Chinese telecom hardware providers like Huawei. Finland's parliament yesterday passed legislation that permits the authorities to exclude telecommunications equipment from the country's networks if such equipment is determined to represent a security threat. 
According to the Washington Post, despite the prospect of a presidential veto, the U.S. House appears ready to pass the National Defense Authorization Act. CyberScoop summarizes the significant cybersecurity measures the NDAA includes. They call it the biggest cyber bill ever. While much of the attention the bill has received surrounds its reestablishment of a White House cyber coordinator position, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is, as CyberScoop says, a major beneficiary. CISA gains authority to issue administrative subpoenas to ISPs when the agency detects security vulnerabilities but can't track the owner down. The law also gives CISA authority for excessive threat hunting within the federal government's networks. The Department of Homeland Security has long held responsibility for the .gov top-level domain. CISA will get a joint cyber planning office, and the agency's director is told to appoint a cybersecurity director for each state. This last provision is intended to improve coordination between state and federal agencies. The law leaves some matters, including some of the recommendations of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, untouched. It won't address, for example, the proliferation of congressional committees with competing oversight responsibilities for cyber, nor did it take up the Solarium advice to amend Sarbanes-Oxley to make it more explicit with respect to cybersecurity risk assessment. But of course, not all things are best dealt with in what is, after all, a defense authorization bill. On balance, the act is noteworthy for what it sought to address. The security predictions emerging this week continue to emphasize the ways in which the continuing trend toward remote work and migration to the cloud will open new opportunities for criminals. Trend Micro, for example, in addition to predicting more criminal attention to APIs, also forecasts that enterprise software and cloud applications used for remote work will be hounded by critical class bugs. And while many are remarking on the growing sophistication of attackers, on Fido notes a contrary or perhaps complementary trend, a lot more skids getting into the criminal game as low-skill amateurs find that the barriers to online fraud have dropped. Fraud, on Fido says, has become the new side hustle where once you might have, for example, tutored or sold cupcakes or babysat or done a little freelance writing, now you may find yourself tempted over to the dark side and you try ways of winkling people out of a little cash. You don't have to know very much, and maybe, we speculate, the curious disinhibition that leads people to disport themselves in cyberspace in ways they'd never even consider in kinetic space. So you take up fraud. How hard can it be? Not very. And so broad is the path that leads to perdition. Don't go there. One of the things the researchers point out is that the time during which the fraud attempts occur no longer approximates the nine to five hours that a lot of professional criminals have kept, and that too is consistent with a side hustle. It used to be called moonlighting for a reason. Another point Unfido makes is that consumer online behavior has shifted enough during this time of widespread lockdown isolation, and distancing that we're finding it more difficult to recognize suspicious behavior. Some of the older markers aren't seeming quite so reliable anymore. Our behavioral assessments need to catch up with this unfortunate new normal. And finally, ZDNet reports that 2,732 pickpoint package delivery lockers across Moscow were opened by a criminal who hacked the pickpoint app. Landlords and guards responded quickly to keep an eye on obviously malfunctioning lockers. 
PickPoint is a purveyor of secure lockers users can lock and unlock with an app. Russian security organizations, and by implication law enforcement organizations, take a lot of grief, and often rightfully so. But this is one case where we're happy to wish the Moscow Militia good hunting. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. A popular feature on Microsoft Windows systems is Group Policy, which enables centralized management and configuration of operating systems, applications, and users' settings in an Active Directory environment. But of course, anything that provides centralized control over multiple user accounts and settings has the potential for abuse. Darren Maralia is Vice President of Products at Sempris, a company that provides directory threat monitoring, detection, and response services. Darren, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Can you give us a little uh, a little explanation of what exactly group policy is and, and how it leads to potential problems? Yeah, for sure. So many, many, many organizations out in the world have deployed Microsoft's Active Directory. And with Active Directory came free and in the box, so to speak, group policy. Group policy is the ability to deploy configuration to Windows desktops and servers, and it's been out there for as long as AD has been out there. It is broadly used to do things like locking down users' desktops, configuring their browser, 
but most importantly, it's also used for security hardening of Windows servers and desktops. So in other words, setting security settings to reduce the Windows desktop or server uh, from an attack surface perspective. Hmm. And so what's the potential problem there? So the potential problem is actually not dissimilar to the problems that we're seeing with Active Directory today. So group policy, because it defines, uh, in a lot of organizations, it defines the security hardening, you know, who, who has administrative access to which machines, and is also world-readable to anyone who is a valid user in Active Directory. It provides uh, a roadmap for sort of seeing where the interesting stuff is from an attacker's perspective. You know, I'm imagining in larger organizations that merely the process of auditing this can be, uh, you know, quite something to contend with. I mean, are there, is this something that you can come at with with a certain level of automation? Yeah, there's definitely some steps you can take for monitoring against this. Um, what, what's interesting is that Microsoft doesn't make this easy out of the box. So by default, the Windows security event logs will tell you that something has changed in a group policy object, but it won't tell you what has changed. So you need <laughs> extra software to determine that. And, and to make it even more challenging, when an attacker gets access to this environment, the tooling has gotten sophisticated enough so that they're not using normal Microsoft APIs to make changes to these group policy objects. They're just writing settings directly into the setting storage in what's called sysvol in the file system on the domain controller. And this will bypass most auditing solutions that are just looking for changes to the group policy objects being made using normal tools. So you have to look for that kind of change in addition to, you know, the typical, you know, normal AD-based change to group policy. So I've been working with group policy for many, many years, and it was actually surprising to me to see group policy being abused in the wild. I always considered it to be a theoretical possibility, but to see it actually being done really kind of woke me up around this problem. And I encourage everyone to not take this for granted that that their group policy environment is safe. It is happening. And I, and I encourage people to take the problem as seriously as they take the problem of hardening their Active Directory itself. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, great to have you back. Good to be with you again, Dave. Uh, you have done the heavy lifting for us here by sitting through the arguments in front of the Supreme Court about the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, give us the lowdown here. First, uh, how about a little quick background? Is What is this case and how did it make it? how did it make its way all the way up to the Supreme Court? So yes, I did uh, listen to oral arguments in the case of Van Buren v. United States. It was a good couple of hours on C-SPAN on Monday. Uh, this is a case dealing with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and it's actually the first uh, CFAA case that's made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. Just as a little bit of background, this act uh, imposes civil and criminal liability for unauthorized access to computers. It's a law uh, that was uh, enacted in the 1980s, originally enacted to address hacking, but it also has this provision that prevents unauthorized access 
to particular materials, websites, et cetera, even if somebody has authorized access to the network or the computer itself. So it prohibits individuals from exceeding authorized access, and that's what's at issue in this case. Hmm. So there was a police officer in Georgia, Nathan Van Buren, who had access to computerized records about license plates uh, just because he was a law enforcement officer. Um, But an FBI agent was interested for his own purposes in gaining access to that database. And it appears as if he paid off uh, Mr. Van Buren to do a search for him. Mr. Van Buren was uh, criminally prosecuted and he appealed his conviction, uh, made its way up to the Supreme Court. Oral arguments were really interesting. The attorney for Mr. Van Buren was arguing that if we have an overbroad interpretation of this provision about exceeding authorized access, that would lead to what the justices referred to as a parade of horribles, a bunch of scenarios where we're criminalizing behavior that pretty much all of us engage in. Uh, Hmm. So accessing Facebook or Instagram on our employer's uh, network or, you know, on on a work computer. Uh, one of the things they mentioned is somebody posting false information on a dating website. These are the types of things in the view of Van Buren's attorney that would be criminalized if we had such a broad interpretation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Hmm. What the government's attorney uh, was saying, conversely, is if we were to not criminalize uh, this type of behavior, that would also set up its own slippery slope. So, for example, we could have people who work for federal agencies who have access to, you know, personal health information. Maybe you work for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and, you know, you try to check out some information on your ex-girlfriend or Mm. ex-boyfriend. If we don't have a broad interpretation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, according to this attorney, then that type of behavior might be legalized. Mm. Uh, So... It's always uh, a dangerous game to try and gleam out what the result is going to be from oral arguments, but I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, <laughs> That's never stopped you before. It's right? never stopped me before. <laughs> I will always opine. It seemed like at least uh, a few justices, including liberals like Justice Sotomayor and conservatives like Justice Gorsuch, were more inclined to side with Van Buren, saying that this overbroad interpretation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act would lead to... Uh, an undue expansion in criminality among federal statutes and would you know, contribute to a trend where the federal government is just criminalizing too much innocuous behavior. Hmm. Uh, it seems to me that there are at least a couple of justices, specifically Justice Alito, who was perhaps more amenable to the government's argument. So we could see a, a split decision here. But I think overall, the justices were skeptical of having such a broad interpretation because of, you know, even if this the entire parade of horribles does not happen, um, at least, you know, a portion of those things might happen if we had such a broad interpretation. So that's my initial read on it. So what what sort of timeline are we on here? How, How does something like this typically play out? So the end of the Supreme Court term is next June. So we'll have to be decided by then. I don't anticipate that it's going to take that long. Generally, cases that are more controversial tend to take a little bit longer. You have to have a justice write opinion. Um, If there's a dissent, you know, a justice is going to write a dissent, and then the person who wrote the opinion has to respond to the dissent, etc. I anticipate that that process would probably wrap up more like in the next three or four months, so maybe February or March. Uh, And that's when perhaps we would see uh, a decision on this. So the absolute latest, you know, if if they're really having trouble 
Coming up with a majority uh, one way or another would be the end of June, but I anticipate that we should get a resolution probably sooner than that. All right. Well, we will stay tuned for sure. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. We'll save you time and keep you informed. Snap, crackle, pop. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.